on our faith. And the working metaphor we've been using is that of the relay race, and in it that we are presently running one leg of the race seeking to have a good handoff, a good transition to a subsequent and following generation. And the way that our faith has been handed off has been in two primary ways, as we talked about last week, biological growth, which simply means have a lot of babies and then raise them in such a way that when they become adults, they own the faith for themselves. And the second is that of conversion growth, meaning that through the proclamation and the demonstration of the kingdom of God, people actually encounter Jesus. And maybe it's through the church, but they acquire faith outside of their biological families. That is conversion growth. And so biological growth and conversion growth, and we have both stories here among us. Like last week, we took a poll, just raise your hands, how you got into Christianity, how you got into the faith, and a lot of hands went up in terms of biological and hands went up in terms of conversion growth. Now, the challenge that we have, which we talked about last week, is that the breakdown of both biological and conversion growth, at least in terms of the Bible, is that in the Old Testament, if you were to read from Genesis to Malachi, it is entirely about biological growth. Not a single story of conversion growth. All about biological. And then when you flip over to the book of Matthew and begin the New Testament, if you were to read it till the end of Revelation, it is almost entirely about conversion growth. Almost nothing about biological growth, which then leaves us with the difficulty of we're trying to live out a New Testament faith with absolutely no examples of how it is that we raise up a second generation of believers. So if you were just to step back and ask the question, does the New Testament tell us how to raise up kids in the faith? I mean, just like really practically, like, hey, as a church, you should do these five things. As families, you should do these six things. The answer is no, it doesn't. That doesn't leave us in despair. It just means we have to think deeply then with wisdom and with discernment and guidance of the Holy Spirit and knowledge of what are best practices out there. And it also means that there isn't a the way, biblically, on how to do things. Which means we're kind of free to change how we do things that maybe used to be effective at one point in our existence, but isn't so much today. So we should find some freedom in knowing that, hey, we could rethink these things and how we could do things more effectively given our time, our place, and our context. And one of the struggles the church has as it is raising a generation of children is this. I just noticed this in the past. The church has a tendency to assume that the culture that exists, that is, will be static and will be the exact same culture for the kids that they're producing or the next generation. And the reality is, it isn't. And as much as the 80s is the greatest decade ever, If I raise my kids as if the 80s is always going to be what it is that exists in culture, I'll already be behind, right? Like the kids that that are growing up in our homes and are going out to be adults will live in an entirely different culture than the one that we grew up in, and we as a church need to be wise about those things and think about those sorts of things. They are living, listen, the kids today, my kids are living at a time with the most rapid rate of change and information ever. I mean ever. The internet and social media are complete game changers. So even when us old people like finally make it onto Facebook, right, the kids are rolling their eyes and they're moving on, right? That's for the old people. And the kids are moving on to Instagram, to Twitter, to Snapchat, to also like, and as soon as you figure those things out, new platforms come out. You know, kids nowadays don't have to take your word for anything anymore. Like, it used to be, like, if I wanted to know something, I would ask my mom and dad, and they would give me an explanation and answer. Nowadays, our kids don't have to ask us for anything, or at least they don't have to take our word for it, because do you know what they have access to nowadays? Google. 
That's a complete game changer, right? I mean, even in our educational system, it is a complete waste of time for kids to memorize a bunch of trivial, useless facts that we'll never remember because they can, in less than 10 seconds, Google the most trivial and obscure question in the world, and it'll come up in their computer, just like, like in their handheld devices in less than 10 seconds. It's an amazing world that we live in. Now, back in my day, like, if your parents were rich enough, they could... <laughs> that was Google, right? The, my kids don't even know what that is anymore. Like, I... I Half of you are laughing, oh, yeah, Encyclopedia Britannica. The other half are like, somebody go to the library? What's that all about? You know? <laughs> Our kids can watch YouTube videos from the most brilliant atheists in the world and the most brilliant theologians in the world. And they can watch videos of truly the biggest whack cult leaders in the world. So if we continue with methodologies that are from a cultural context that doesn't reflect the change, assuming that it's just going to be static and the same thing will, they'll inherit, then we're already behind. What we need to do is figure out how to leverage the very best of what is available. Since kids have such access and media, social media is so important, how do you leverage that for the kingdom of God? And this will take from us a lot of study and discernment and wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit, who I want to say, listen, the Holy Spirit is not panicked by any of this, right? You get that, right? Like, the Holy Spirit isn't like, oh, my goodness, Snapchat. I don't know what to do now. Like, that's, the Holy Spirit is not there. He's okay. But the goal for us in our conversation in this series is to ask, how do our kids own for themselves the faith of Jesus? What I mean by that is God doesn't have grandchildren. God doesn't have grandchildren. Nobody gets grandfathered into the kingdom of God. Nobody will ever stand before Jesus and go, well, my parents were really faithful. Like, nobody gets grandfathered in that way. God only has sons and daughters. He doesn't have grandkids. Now, we know that there's a season in our kids' lives when they're very, very little and young where it is appropriate, given their physical and spiritual development, that they think the things that they do because mom and dad said so, right? So there's a season in their life when it's okay for, well, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Because mom and dad said so. And we know this to be true on other areas of our life. That's why sometimes when I hear parents with young kids, go, well, I don't want to push my beliefs on them. And so like, I go, well, that's what you do as a parent. Like you're trying to raise your kids. It's okay to do those sorts of things. And you, and you do it in other areas, right? Like I don't know why religion gets singled out as, well, I don't want to do Like by not doing anything, you are in fact doing something. But uh, if you let your kids, your young kids, they'll only eat Cheetos and Pop-Tarts, right? That's all they'll eat because that's all any kid wants to eat. That's all I want to eat. I mean, so I, I, I get that. But you know something that they don't know, and that is that's bad for them. And so you try to teach them. Now, when they get uh, older, all they might eat is Pop-Tarts and Cheetos. That means they're in college. That's what that means. But you're hoping that they will own for themselves those sorts of things because you can't feed them forever. So the goal for us in the same way in terms of faith is there's only a period of time when they can rest on, well, that's because mom and dad said so, but you don't want a 30-year-old when you ask them about their faith responds with, well, I don't know why I believe that, just my parents told me that's the truth. And so in it, they need to own it for themselves. Now, what this will mean for you parents is you are destined for anxiety. And you know why? Because no faith can be owned for itself without going through a process of testing and questioning and rebellion and finally making it one's own. So when your kids start to get a little older, you should just expect that they're going to have questions about what they're supposed to believe, what you told them they're supposed to believe, and why they should believe it. 
And they're going to come at you with alternative arguments and different points, and you're going to start to feel anxiety rise up in you. And here's what I'd say, don't flip out, okay? Don't flip out. Man, I'll tell you what, my dad and I, I can't tell you the number of drag down, knockout arguments we had about Bible and theology and scripture and church, and fortunately, he's come to agree with me on everything, <laughs> which happens. But I'm sure his blood pressure medication was in large part due to those sorts of things. So you could expect testing, and you can expect rebellion. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't get to still be the parent. Like, you might have a kid, well, I don't want to go to church. Well, you're my house, you're going to go to church. And you as the parent can still say, hey, while you're in church, you're going to put the phone away and quit playing games all the time, or Sam might call you out from the front, and that'll be embarrassing to all of us. But you can't make their hearts love Jesus. They'll have to own that for themselves. And so you can expect that. And in the end, you can probably expect that they will have different thoughts than you, especially on areas that, quite honestly, are not really central to our faith. Because we have a lot of things that we think and we believe that if you really boil it down to, is that really core to, is that orthodoxy in terms of the Christian faith? We'd have to admit, no, probably not. And what happens is, what I notice is a lot of churches, a lot of denominations, what they do is they kind of have their favorite doctrine or doctrines that they talk about all the time or the things that they emphasize more than anything else or they have their unique identifying markers. And you might have one generation that's totally committed to those things and then the next generation, as they go back and examine the scriptures, they find, actually, we're not committed to those things. Like, that's not the things that we want to emphasize. This is not necessarily the identifying marker we want to be. And you could see this largely along generational lines. And it would be interesting just for us to do a generational study. But what we know is if, if you're like 60 and older, and this is not a criticism, this is the way it is. If you're 60 and older, your worldview and thought processes are completely different than somebody who's 30 and under. And when I just throw out social issues that are out there today, there'll be a huge divide between those who are older and those who are younger, just on generational lines altogether. And we as a church need to be wise about those things and think about those things again. So when our kids enter the process of owning their own faith, don't defensively bring it to an end or punish them in response or attitude when they question or test or push things a little bit. But here's what I would say. In your family and even in this church, this should be a place where doubts and questions are welcomed. This should be a place when if somebody is struggling with doubt, like, I don't know if I believe this anymore, or I have questions about this, it's like, great. You, you find a safe place to have doubts and questions. I, I dream of the Livingstones Church being a community of theologians. And what I mean by that is uh, theology just means the study of God, and that is we think well and deeply about our faith. And what that means is we reject those stupid Christian memes that aren't helpful to anybody or those cliche answers to very complex problems. We place that we, we don't flip out if a cherished belief is being challenged. Because sometimes, I'm telling you, it's good for us to be challenged over and over again in our beliefs and what we think. It's good for, because sometimes, here's what I've experienced, other generations will rise up and they'll see something different from a different perspective that I've never even considered before. And they'll read scripture in light of this angle that I've never even thought about that before. And all of a sudden, it opens up new worlds and new possibilities. And I would just say, like, that's okay for us. Like, that's, that's healthy for even older generations to have to go back and go, huh, why did I think that? And why did I see it like that? And what this new thing that I'm hearing, does this fit in terms of the faith that is Jesus? What good is it to have a 2,000-year-old historic faith that can't make it through the fire of examination and questioning? And when a kid then owns this for himself... This is, for me, in my mind, where baptism takes place. 
Baptism is that moment when a person decides to own this faith for themselves, where they have examined their life and their faith, and they can commit to the ways of Jesus for the rest of their life. Now, here's the dilemma that we have. Every example of baptism in the New Testament, every one of them, is about conversion growth, meaning the person getting baptized is coming from a background of either Judaism or paganism, and now they're embracing Jesus as Lord. Well, when I think about my family and my three kids, like, they just don't fit that template, right? My three kids didn't grow up in Judaism, and they aren't pagans, although they do act like heathens from time to time. <laughs> so, like, when Paul talks about that old life of sin, which is a metaphor he uses, or dying to the old self, those metaphors don't really make very much sense to children who are growing up in the church, who can go, see, I'm at church on Sunday morning, Wednesday night youth girl. Like, like their whole life is all about church. And what happens is sometimes churches baptize little kids, and so they've got a five-year-old, and they're talking about the five-year-old leaving their old life of sin, and I'm thinking, what life of sin? Like, they're five years old. Like, what, they, they pulled their sister's hair? Like, I mean, can a five-year-old sin? Well, sure. They do it all the time, those little cute, adorable liars. They're not culpable of those sins, and they're definitely not in jeopardy of hell. See, here's my goal as a parent. My goal is not for my three kids to finally go, I need to leave my old life of sin and turn to Jesus. My goal is I don't want my three kids to ever know a day where they don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they'll have to embrace that for themselves, but my goal as a parent is to raise them in such a way where they don't know a day in their life when they have not loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when a child can say that, when a child is able to grow up and own that for himself, what I would say is that's where baptism comes in. And so baptism will mean something different for them, at least in language and metaphor, than what we see in the New Testament. Baptism will be that moment when they will say to their mother and their father, like, I absolve you of standing before God to give an account for me. I'll stand before God and give an account for myself. I am choosing to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ for the rest of their life. And, and that's when they should get baptized. And listen to me, a seven-year-old doesn't know what they're going to do tomorrow, let alone for the rest of their life. If you don't trust your kid to stay at home by themselves because they're not mature enough to do that, how would you trust them to make such a mature decision as to follow Jesus for the rest of their life? There is a reason why in the United States uh, contracts are not binding unless those who sign it are over age 18 because they recognize a 16-year-old might want a Lamborghini, but he has no concept whatsoever of the financial chaos that's about to come his way should he buy, buy one, right? Jesus was 30 years old when he was baptized, and a 9-year-old is not in danger of hell. And in it, God has no grandchildren. So what do we do with the different spiritual growth stages and developments of our kids? So this goes back to what we're asking. Like, we just had families, and we as a church just pledged to help raise our kids in the faith. And so here's what we need to know. Experts tell us that there are natural ages in which we see kids grow and develop in their spiritual life. And this isn't legalistic, and it's subject to change. It's some subjectivity. But here's what we know. A five-year-old, just at, at five years of age, they start to sense their thoughts and emotions move towards Jesus. They're starting to understand conceptually some basics of the Christian faith, and they're more than capable of responding to God's love. And a five-year-old is looking somehow to affirm those thoughts and those feelings, and the question for us as families and as a church is, what does that look like? 
Like when we see our five-year-old starting to gravitate towards Jesus by way of heart and thoughts, what do we do to come in and to affirm that and to provide for them a signpost that that's actually taking place? Now, depending on what you grew up in by way of churches, you know, I hear stories all the time from people like, yeah, when I was five years old, I mean, I was in the bathroom weeping over my sins and and in danger of hell and asking, and I pray Jesus into my heart, right? You hear that story all the time. Um, My question is, rather than that necessarily, what do we do at the Living Stones Church to affirm a five-year-old's movement towards Jesus? Do we kind of have a party for for them? Do we give them a certificate that kind of gives the date and marks that as a signpost that they can hang on to? Do we invest in kind of maybe Bibles that are appropriate for a five-year-old and give it to them in some sort of ceremony that they can mark this time and place in their spiritual development? Do they get a... Anyone ever be part of Awana? Anyone be a part of the Awana process? Anyone? The brilliance of Awana is you get all those badges, and like kids love badges. Like, and so you do these certain things, you kind of move to this particular, so why? So you can have a ceremony where you get this badge and you get to celebrate that, and it's genius. The question is, what is the signpost to mark this stage of development? Because if the only thing a church has to offer by way of signposts is baptism, then a five-year-old will want to get baptized whether they should or not. And some of you struggle with that in families. You've got real young kids like, I want to get baptized, I want to get baptized. What I'd say is, yeah, five, we've got to find something else besides baptism to affirm a five-year-old's movement towards Jesus. The tangible is very important in the midst of the spiritual. You know what I mean by that? Something that you can hold on to that you can kind of sense and feel like dates and markers. In fact, what we do even here on Sunday morning, when we gather together to take communion, it's something tangible that in the end symbolizes something very spiritual. Baptism is something very tangible that symbolizes a very big spiritual reality behind it. And a five-year-old needs that. Now, we also know in the development stage, a seven-year-old is at a whole other level of spiritual development. A seven-year-old, unlike the five-year-old, is acquiring a lot more knowledge about the Bible and our faith. They're having new thoughts and emotions in regards to Jesus and the love of God. The question we need to ask ourselves is, how do we affirm a seven-year-old's movement towards Jesus? What do we do as a church that celebrates that and says, that's fantastic. That's exactly what we've been praying for for you and hoping for for you. And then after seven-year-old, nine-years-old seems to be another major uh, natural spiritual development stage and so and nine-year-olds like this is where you send a bunch of nine-year-olds to church camp Whew, let me tell you what happens at campfire on thursday night right? i mean that's so what's happening a whole nother level of movement towards jesus well how do you mark that how do you symbolize that how do you affirm that a 12 year old a 12 year by 12 years of age you're having another you're at another area of spiritual development and you know why because a 12 year old is far more aware of their sinfulness A 12-year-old has far more sins underneath their belt that they can recall in their own mind. And if I'm moving towards Jesus, what do I do with that? Well, here's the story of our good news and with grace. 15 years of age, 18 years of age, those are all natural spiritual growth areas, right? 5, 7, 9, 12, 15, 18. And so what we need to ask ourselves as family and churches is when we have 5-year-olds, what do we want them to know? Like, what are, the, what are the stories we want them to hear? What are the facts that we want them to know about our faith? And what do we want them as five-year-olds to have experienced in our midst, conceptually about our faith? And what are all the available means that we have to us today to do those sorts? Like, back in my day, it used to be, remember, anyone have flannel crafts? Anyone ever have that in Sunday school, right? Man, back in my day, it was, and pipe cleaner crafts. Everyone had the pipe cleaner Oh, man, I love those, right? But, like, if that's not it today, my question is, what is it for today? Like, for our five-year-olds, what do we use to help them in this development? What do we want a seven-year-old to know and experience? What do we want a nine-year-old to know and experience? And what are those signposts that we build into our kids as a community of faith that they look forward to? They know, yeah, when I get to be about age 18, I'm going to do this. 
when I get to be 15, I'm going to do this, because this is what our church celebrates and affirms and does. And most uh, cultures have these sort of initiation rites to help kids grow and mature. For example, if you grow up Jewish, when a kid turns 13, he'll have either a bar mitzvah or she'll have a bath mitzvah, and it's the community's way of saying, listen, you're getting older now, and you need to own this for yourself. You're starting to enter into adulthood, and you get to have a, a party, and uh, that's all cool, right? That's what they do. So what is it here? Like at the Living Stones Church, like when you turn 18, do you get a tattoo to mark your faith? That seems appropriate here. That's something that we probably do at the Living Stones Church. And you get what I'm saying, right? Child dedication, what we just did this morning, is our way to pledge that we're going to be faithful in this process. But my question is, what comes next? Like before baptism, so between child dedication and baptism, what do we do as a church that celebrates, affirms, and provides something tangible as a signpost of our kids as they make movements towards Jesus? Maybe it's a party at Chuck E. Cheese, right? Only so that when they're at Chuck E. Cheese, they'll know the realities of hell, which I think is what they'll learn in Chuck E. Cheese. This is our challenge as a community of faith. Now, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. The question is, what are the best practices even that other churches are doing in this regard? And maybe we can adopt that here. And in it, we don't hold on to it as if this is central to the gospel. We recognize that the New Testament doesn't tell us how to raise our children in the faith because it's a concern with the amazing story of conversion growth. We've got to figure this out. And here's what I know. Communities are much better at this than individuals. Communities are much better at this than individuals. Isolated individuals don't produce the most faithful disciples. And if you just watch Jesus, what does he do with all of his disciples? He calls them into community all the time. Like not once does he say to Peter, Peter, I just want you to go off all by yourself on your own unique individual spiritual journey. No, no, what does he call Peter into? Community. Like when John shows up, Jesus doesn't say, John, I just want you to go be an isolated hermit for the kingdom of God. No, no. What does he do? He calls them into community, a community that's established by the Spirit of God and committed to the mission of God's kingdom, and the same is true for us. And let me tell you what I need for the sake of my three kids here. I need spiritual grandparents at the Living Stones Church and spiritual aunts and spiritual uncles and spiritual moms and dads who could come around Kelly and I and help us in raising our kids in the faith. And that might look just as simple as you being willing to pray for my three kids. And let me tell you, like, I love people who love my kids, don't you? Like, if somebody doesn't like your kids, do you like them? No, can't stand them, right? But if you love my kids, like, I love you. If I know you're looking after my kids and praying for them, just merely my heart goes out to you. It might mean you just periodically checking in and asking, hey, what can I pray for for your kids? It might mean you volunteering in LSC kids to help teach them the faith. And listen, I grew up in this church, and I just have a list of people like Bruce Sullivan and Thelma Johnson and Steve Eisenbarth who taught me, that, like I still recall as a little kid, little Sammy in the classrooms back here learning the faith, from other adults. That might be your role with my kids, and they will be able, when they're adults, to recall your name and to say it out loud to others to say, these people help me in my spiritual journey. It might mean serving an element with our junior high kids. And while they're establishing relationship with kids where they start to trust you, they look up to you, and they even like you, and that'll be important because they're not always going to like me. And when my kids don't like me, They'll at least have somebody that they can confide in and talk to and share and say, this is what's going on. And then you'll come and you'll tell me everything that they said. But I mean, you, 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 you. 
It might mean you taking a week out of your life and going to camp with them. It might be you serving right alongside them on the worship team or maybe back with the kids. It might mean you taking them fishing or camping or to a ball game, which I've got memories growing up here where um, my dad didn't even go with me, but Dick Newport and Dave Mornout would call the house, and they were going to go fishing. One if I wanted to go in, just me, and they'd take me fishing. And, and that was instrumental in my life to have other people in this community of faith who were able to help my parents, so to speak, raise me. And in that, we need that for one another. Paul would have sons in the faith. He became a spiritual father. He would have Timothys, so to speak, that he helped raise up. And so let me give you two passages of Scripture. One's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 to 13. Listen to uh, the words of Paul here. He talks about, hey, we're, we're like young children among you. But here, here now, look, listen to his metaphors. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are even witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you, they say we set an example for you. We were role models for you. For you know that we dealt with each of you like a father deals with his own children, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accept it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Or he'll say this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15 to 17. Listen, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, which is a role that we've played by adults sometimes for young kids in a family, like you could have a guardian, he says, even if you had 10,000 of those, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And then he mentions one of those that he, in fact, fathered in the, spiritually in the gospel. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. We need spiritual fathers and mothers. And this is our pledge as a community of faith, the best we can will be a real support and blessing to your kids in the process of bringing them up in the faith. And this leads us to have to ask big questions. And these are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Like, what is the role of children's ministry here at the Living Stones Church? Is it truly a support and supplement, or have our parents just kind of passed off the raising up of our kids in the faith back to what's going on back there? We have to ask those questions. What is the role of student ministry here in this church? Is it helpful in terms of it provides a supplement for our families in terms of helping guide our teenagers in the faith? Or has it become a place where parents have abdicated that primary responsibility over to those who work with our youth? Is it a good thing that our kids don't know their pastor because they don't ever see their pastor? It struck me the other day. Like, because kids back in LSC kids, right? They're back there. Like, they don't know I'm their pastor. Is that a good thing? Uh, to, to, or is there something important about is it? Is it good for kids to see their parents worship? Is it good maybe for kids and children to take communion with us? This is the question is in terms of what intergenerational experiences might be important for us as a church to have because did you know that you could be a part of some churches and from 0 to 18 you were never with the church collective? You're always back in the kids area and then you go to the student ministry area and so you know what happens to them when they turn 18? You know what happens when they leave the house? They also leave the church because they have absolutely no experience in the larger collective church. Is that a good thing? And so what do we as a church need to do about those sorts of, those sorts of things? So let me close 
this out with a word to the families who just dedicated their kids and in doing so really say something to all of us as parents. Uh, I'm wrapping up 19 years here in this place at the end of the year. I've been here 19 years as the pastor. I started when I was 12, and so that's provided me now with a unique perspective of having watched an entire generation both be born and now entering into adulthood, marriage, and having children of their own, which nothing makes you feel older than watching somebody that I was, I remember when you were born, and now they're having kids. And in it, I've seen all sorts of families, and I've watched a lot of different families handle this raising up in the faith in lots of different ways, and I'm kind of now nearing the end of my children being in the house and about to be on their own. Praise Jesus. Just kidding. Here's what I can say. Nothing trumps your home. What happens in your home is the greatest deciding factor in regards to whether or not your child will accept the faith of Jesus. Is youth group important? Yes. But it's not nearly as important as what's happening in your home. Is LSC Kids important? Yeah, that's why we spend a lot of time and energy and resources on it, but it's not nearly as important as what's going on in your home. Is coming to church weekly important? Yeah, yeah. But even what happens here will not trump what's happening in your home. And kids have, I'm just going to be blunt here, kids have a great BS meter. They just do. They know how to sniff that out. They, they know when something is authentic and when something is fake, when something is truly important and when something is just obligatory. They've got a great way of detecting, without you even ever having to explicitly say it, what's the most important thing in your world and where your true allegiance and priority rests. And so use your words. Those are important. Remember, we talked about this last week in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 9. It talks, you know, it's an encouragement to Israel to teach their kids the faith. And it says in verse 7 of that passage, impress them on your children, the commandments. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What it's saying is, what are those teachable moments? Where are they? And what do they look like in your home? What will be the visual reminders and cues of your faith within your home? And listen, every family is different, and every family will have their own ritual. And don't let it just be, well, we say a prayer before the meal. Like, that won't be enough. Maybe for you, it's in your family, once a week you have a devotional. Or maybe as a family, you actually go on a mission trip and you serve. Or maybe in your family, it's, we read a chapter of the Bible every morning at breakfast before everyone goes to work and school. Or maybe it's once a week, twice a week, you guys play a Bible trivia game as a family and have a good time and in that uh, begin to transmit information and stuff about the Bible. I mean, there's lots of different ways you could do it. But beyond your words, the kids are watching your priorities. And they know when you are more committed to their progress in sports and athletics than you are in their progress in the spiritual life. They just see how you light up differently. They know when really the most important thing is for you to get good grades and to get into a good college. That's your greatest priority for their life. They know in spite of Jesus' warnings of what happens to people who make a lot of money that you seem to want them to succeed defined in ways that are completely opposite of the values of the kingdom of God. And they know when your own faith is shallow and built on cliches and they know when rituals and traditions have trumped vitality and passion. Now, let me say this to those, because I know sometimes we talk about this, you know, there's a tendency for those who might have kids who are already out of the house. You kind of, oh, you look back, you feel guilty, we should have done this, should have done that. And let me say this to you. Uh, this is not to put guilt on, on anyone. And you need to know that our God is big enough that he can reach from heaven 
and give a great revelation of his crazy love for your children in ways that you might look back and go, oh, I wish I would have done it like this, or I wish I would have known better in this particular way. So don't, don't let Satan heap that on you. Don't, I'm not asking you to feel guilty, but you know, listen, continue to pray for your kids, even if they're now adults and out of your house, that the Lord Jesus will grab their hearts and they'll develop a great passion and love for him. And you keep praying that faithfully, and the word tells us, listen, God will answer that prayer. It might take some time for you to see it lived out, and you've got to hang on in hope and faith, but continue to that prayer. So in it, we need help in this to think well in these areas, to figure out best practices, because we want to enter a conversation in regards to what it might look like to be a vibrant community of faith that totally rocks this biological growth thing. And when the time comes and we turn the corner and prepare to hand off the baton to the next leg of the race, we want to do so with swift and excellent movement and form. Amen? Let's all stand together. Let's pray.